Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here again and have enjoyed the service thus far. It's good to see Naaman and Marion here this morning. I did see Naaman. Don't see him now, but it's good to see him and have them here. Uh, there he is. Have them here with you. are not your, your normal spot up close to the front here. Uh, have them, good to have them here with us today. I also want to acknowledge that uh, we just have come out of VBS here in the past week. I want to thank Rainey Wilma, Wendell and Crystal, the guides, many others that were involved in that. Acknowledge the hard work that it took to takes to pull something like that off. And, uh, of course, uh, at our house, we had to have a water battle yesterday afternoon because when you get something new in the house, like water guns, you can't wait more than a day or two to use them. Um, and so we did that even though it wasn't particularly hot yesterday, and that was enjoyable. Um, but there's also songs uh, that I hear in the house, and there's stories, stories, Jared's stories of treasure that are sticking that have stuck, and uh, thinking also of Larry's, Larry Berge's uh, messages on relationships and how Scripture impacts our relationships and the way that we treat each other. And I want to acknowledge this morning that if you're like me, you're probably a bit tired and, dare I say, maybe even a bit churched out. Um, and I want to acknowledge it for the children, especially the young children, it may be that way as well. But I believe God has something for us today, and I look forward to our service together this morning. And like I mentioned, I have enjoyed it uh, thus far. I'm guessing if you read through your Bible in a year, uh, you've probably read through the book of Judges recently. Typically, that would be in the spring if you read it in order. And if you read it chronologically, I believe it comes sometime in early April. And the book of Judges is a particularly jarring book, a shocking book. It's got some stories in there that um, if I was the author of the Bible, I'd probably just leave out. I probably would not include, like the woman that killed an army commander by driving a tent peg through his head, like a man who murdered his 70 brothers so he could roll over a city. And when the city rebelled against him, he killed all of them. And he burned down a tower with a thousand people in it. And like a roller who sacrifices his daughter because of a rash vow that he made to God. And another roller who runs around with wicked women. And then there's stories beyond that towards the end of the book that I can hardly even talk about. Why are they there? Why would we have stories like that in our scriptures? Now, as we look at the book of Judges... I think there's three ways that we can approach this book. One way is to see it as a series of catastrophic events and of turning from God and of the just utter depravity of the heart of man outside of God and a portrait of a people, of what happens to a people when there's a lack of good leadership. And we could also observe and approach the book in a way and look at God's sovereignty and look at how, in spite of difficulties and challenges, he raises up leaders from time to time and he uses people from time to time. 
and how he weaves grace and love and his will throughout difficult times in life and in scripture. And then a third way that we could look at the book of Judges is to look at individual stories of individual men who God called and look at their lives and learn how God used them. And so I plan to preach a series of three messages on the book of Judges. I was planning to do one, uh, but it turned into three as I begin stu- began studying. I want to look at each of these three angles in separate messages over the coming months. But today's message is titled, The Book of Judges, A Look at the, at the Depravity of Man. And you might be sitting there thinking, the depravity of man... What a depressing subject. Yes, depressing for sure. Absolutely. But stick with me. There are lessons to be learned, and perhaps we can do some important self-reflection as well. A few notes as we look at the book of Judges. Uh, The key phrase, and you can probably think of what this might be, a key verse or a key phrase, comes up four times, particularly in the latter part of the book, and we'll look at them later on in the message, but I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this key verse as we go throughout our look through the book of Judges today, and that is this. In those days, there was no king, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. In those days, there was no king, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And as you think about that verse, what's lacking? What's lacking there? Yes, there's a king that's lacking for sure. But there's also a lack of a foundation. And dare I say, a lack of absolutes. Does that sound familiar? You heard something about a lack of absolutes in our culture today. A lack of foundation and a lack of of absolutes. The people did what was right in their own eyes. The name of the book comes from the type of leaders that God used during this time. Um, And as we think of judges, we probably think of a courtroom, you know, dressed in a long black robe, sitting in a courtroom, and that's not necessarily what these judges were. Yes, they would have judged the people from time to time. They would have arbitrated when there were challenges that arose. But these men were, we could maybe think of them more in terms of regional military leaders. That was more their role, at least as we read of them in the book of Judges. If we count up the years in the book of Judges, the years of oppression and the years of peace and the years that various judges judged, uh, Judges appears to cover around 500 years. 410 years are expressly accounted for in the book. Now, it's possible that some of the judges overlapped a bit, and there's other sources that seem to think that the book spans more like two to 300 years. But let's, let's just think about that span of time for a moment. 300 years. What was here 300 years ago? How much has the world changed in the last 300 years? Was this nation even a nation 300 years ago? No. What about four or 500 years ago? So that's kind of the span that we're talking about here in the book of Judges, somewhere in the range of probably three to four hundred years. And as we look in the book of Judges, we can break it up this morning into three parts. 
Chapters 1 and 2 are kind of an intro into the book. Marcus read a chunk there of chapter 2, and it sets up the stage for Israel's catastrophic, and I, w- and I dare say, um, unprecedented moral failure. And if, if we were to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, without knowing what comes next, I don't think we would predict the book of Judges. I really don't think we would. In a sense, the book of Judges is completely unexpected, except that we know it's coming because we've read it. But outside of us reading it ahead of time, I think it would be completely unexpected. And so chapters 1 and 2 set us up for the rest of the book. Chapters 3 through 16 then look at the various judges, the cycles of Israel's history during this time, and we can observe, and I want you to do this this morning during this sermon, I want you to observe the progression downward, the cycles and the steady progression downward to more and more corruption from pretty good leadership to decent leadership to okay to bad to really, really not good at all. And then chapter 17 through 21 is a collection of very disturbing stories that show the results of what happens when a people forsakes God and the utter, utter depravity of mankind. So open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1, and we're going to start there this morning. Uh, Marcus started us off there in chapter 2, but Judges chapter 1 and 2, like I mentioned, is kind of an intro to the book. Uh, in the book of Joshua, we could go back into the book of Joshua and look at what happened there. God gave the Israelites victory and peace. They were given ownership of the promised land, but not they hadn't conquered all of it. They had conquered much of it, but not all of it. And in Joshua chapter 23 and 24, God had given the people rest from their enemies. Joshua's getting old. Joshua gives the people the inside scoop and reminds them of what happens if you follow God versus what happens if you don't follow God. And it's really, a lot of it is really Moses on repeat. It's what Moses had said before, a lot of the same ideas, a lot of the same concepts, the same reminder, the next generation, what happens if you follow God versus what happens if you forsake God. And in Judges chapter 1, it starts out well enough. Judah and Simeon conquer the Canaanites and the Perizzites in their land. Judah fought against the Canaanites in multiple cities. I believe there's six listed there, but they did not complete the job. And towards the end, in verses 19 through 36, it discusses various people groups that the nation of Israel did not drive out. And then in Judges chapter 2, if you would turn there, the first five verses share with us God's response to the failure of the people of Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Joshua 6 to 10 gives a quick history of how we got to where we are. Sorry, Judges chapter 2 verses 6 through 10, gives us a quick history. It talks about how Joshua let the people go. Go, it, go possess the land. Go possess your inheritance there in verse 6. The people served the Lord while Joshua was alive. Um, and then Joshua died, and they buried him, and all, all that generation also died. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. How is that possible? How is that possible? A generation arose which knew not the Lord, 
nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And, and I'm making a little, a little bit of an assumption here. I'm guessing that they knew in the sense that they had heard the stories. But did they understand? Did they understand? Apparently there was a lack of understanding. And then verses 11 through 23, which is what Marcus read, gives us a blueprint for the book. And if you would scan down through there, Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 23, you can kind of see what we're looking at here for the rest of the book. Here is the cycle that we find in Judges and the cycle of human history and the cycle of human tendency. And it goes something like this. The people did evil in God's sight. They forsook God in spite of what God had done for them, and they became like the people around them. And then the Lord became angry with his people, and he delivered them and sold them to the people around them, just like he said that he would do. And then the people were greatly distressed, and they would cry out to God, and the Lord would raise up judges to save the people. And then the people would follow God again for a time, and then the judge would die. And they would go back and be like the people around them into cycles of deeper and deeper and deeper decay, depravity, and moral failure. And ultimately, at the end of chapter 2, God decided to not drive out the other nations from the land. And so the blueprint of the book could be summarized in the following way. And as you hear this, I'm guessing you can probably think of it in terms of your own life. It goes like something like this. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. And the cycle goes on and on and on and on throughout the book. And as we look at chapters 3 through 16, we can see this cycle again and again and again. Various judges in the cycle of Israel's history during this time. And we can observe again, what I want you to observe is a couple of things here. I want you to observe an apparent progression to more and more corruption And I want you to observe a progression from decent leadership to bad leadership to worse leadership. And then later in the book, observe what happens when we get to the bottom. And we can break down this section, chapters 3 through 16, in the following way. Chapters 3 to 5, it's kind of like three quick, exciting stories. Adventures, you might say. We have the... uh, the adventure of Othniel. The children of Israel did evil, and they served the king of Mesopotamia for eight years. And the Lord raised up Othniel, which was Caleb's younger brother, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and they were victorious, and this led to 40 years of peace until Othniel's death. Eight years under the king of Mesopotamia, eight years of oppression, 40 years of peace. And then we have Ehud. The children of Israel did evil again, And they served Moab 18 years. But then Ehud rises up, kills the king of Moab, rallies the troops of Ephraim, and led the people to victory. And this led to 80 years of peace. 18 years of oppression, 80 years of peace. And next we have Shamgar. Don't know a whole lot about him. 
He struck down a bunch of Philistines, and I'm guessing he probably contributed to the 80 years of peace as well. Then we have Deborah and Barak. And Israel sinned against God again. They served the Canaanites for 20 years. Around this time, Deborah was a prophetess who was judging Israel. And God revealed to her that Barak was to lead the army against the Canaanites, which he eventually did. Took a little bit of time there. And chapter 5 is the song of Deborah and Barak after their victory. And the land was at peace 40 years. 20 years of oppression, 40 years of peace. So let's review just a minute. Eight years of oppression, 40 years of peace. 18 years of oppression, 80 years of peace. Followed by 20 years of oppression and 40 years of peace. Pretty consistent, pretty long times of peace there in between shorter times of oppression. And then in chapters 6 through 16, there are eight additional judges. We won't look at all of them, but the stories center around three primary judges, and these are stories that you probably have learned from little up. Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And as I read the story of Samson again, I wondered why we have so many children's books about Samson, but we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later on. And here we start going, in this section of the book, we start going from bad to worse. And I want you to watch out again for two things here. First of all, longer times of oppression and shorter times of peace. And again, the trend towards moral failure of the leaders. Longer times of oppression, shorter times of peace, and also the trend toward moral failure of the leaders. The first judge that we'll talk about is Gideon. The people did evil and served Midian for seven years. Gideon starts out pretty well. He's a bit of a coward. Uh, But once God proves to him that he's going to be with him, um, Gideon proves his boldness by leading an army of 300 to to a victory over a vast army of Midianites, and the land has rest for 40 years. But then Gideon does something here that no other judge up to this time has done. He makes an ephod from some gold plundered from the enemy, and he builds, if I understand this correctly, the idea here is he makes something to worship or something to worship with that was against God. I don't know if it was an idol exactly, but regardless of what it was, the people prostituted themselves by worshiping there, and it became a snare to him and his family. So we have Gideon, seven years of oppression, and 40 years of peace. Next up, we have Jephthah. And you can turn to chapter 10 there of of Judges, Judges chapter 10, and we'll look over the story of Jephthah just a bit. The people sinned against God again. Again, we have this cycle. God sold them to the Philistines and to the Ammonites for 18 years, 18 years of oppression. The people cry out to God again, and we're not going to go over this in detail, but God's response here was different than before. Does God get tired of us? Kind of get the feeling here that he did just a little bit because God says, you know, you're crying out to me, but why don't you go cry out to the gods that you're serving? Go cry out to the gods that you're worshiping. If you're going to worship and serve those things as God, let them deliver you from your problems 
and the situation that you're in. But eventually, God's, it says God's soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. How gracious is God? God's soul was grieved when he saw the misery of Israel. And Jephthah agrees to lead the fight against the enemy. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and the Lord delivered the enemy into his hands. So we have the same progression, the same cycle. But something's different. Something's different here. Jephthah made a rash and unreasonable vow that resulted in him offering his daughter as a burnt offering. The Bible makes it clear here that Jephthah followed through with his vow. Now, what was he thinking? Did he not know that the law forbade, specifically forbade, child sacrifice? Did he not know that he could have redeemed his daughter with the proper amount of money? We can see, see that in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. Did the people around him did not stop him from this? Just like the men stopped Saul from killing Jonathan to fulfill a rash vow that Saul had made in 1 Samuel 14. There's a shift here. There's something happening here that's a little bit unsettling. The first thing that I think we can observe is that the judge himself seems to have lost sight of his God, of the character of God, of the way God works, of God's law. And then secondly, it appears like in a very real way that the people have lost an understanding of God, of who he is, of his laws, and of his way. Now, it goes on to say that Jephthah judged Israel six years. But was it six years of peace? He oversaw the death of 42,000 Ephraimites during this time over a little bit of a disagreement, you might say. Is that a time of peace? Eighteen years of oppression, six years of judging. But it doesn't say anything about peace. After three other judges, short uh, excerpts about them, we come to Samson. And the children of Israel again do evil, and God again delivers them into the hands of their enemies, and this time to the hands of the Philistines. For 40 years, 40 years of oppression at the hands of the Philistines. Now, something different happens here, at least from what I can tell reading the book of Judges, and we don't know otherwise, so we'll make a few assumptions here and read between the lines. But Samson, as I understand it, is the first judge that God specifically selected to do a specific work. God specifically selects Samson, who was to be a Nazarite, or set aside, or consecrated for a specific work, as the man who is to deliver, deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. But Samson ends up being the worst of them all. Promiscuous, violent, arrogant. From time to time, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he single-handedly gains victory, victory after victory over the Philistines. But he has an insatiable desire for women, particularly women of the Philistines. And the Philistines use this to their advantage, and ultimately it leads to Samson's demise. In his death, he, he killed more Philistines than during his life, and he had judged Israel 20 years, 40 years of oppression, 
20 years of judging. What happened to the years of peace? And so we can see this progression in the book of Judges, the the spiraling downward over time. The leaders become more and more morally corrupt, ultimately culminating in the life of Samson. The times of peace or of judging are shorter, and the times of oppression are longer. At the beginning of the book, we typically see that the times of peace are, give or take, three and a half times longer than the times of oppression. But as we get to the end of the book, this ratio begins to flip, and the times of oppression begin to be two to three times longer than the time, the times of peace. And they are no longer called times of peace or times of rest, but the amount of time that a certain man judged the land. So what's happening here? What's going on? There's something happening here that's a little bit unsettling. And this all culminates, you might say, as we look at chapters 17 through 21. Go ahead, turn to Judges chapter 17. And we're going to look at two stories in these chapters. Two stories in five chapters. Disturbing stories that show the result of where we've ended up. The first story is about a man named Micah who uses money that his mother had consecrated to the Lord for him to make an idol. Now, let's, let's unpack that just a minute. Think through that. The story rela- recalls how he stole money from his mother, and he heard his mother utter a curse about it, and then he returned that money to his mother, and his mother was thankful. And then she tells him this, I've consecrated that money to the Lord for you to make an idol. What does that mean? What does that mean? I, I, I'm not sure if I, if I can understand. How did we get to this point? I've consecrated this money to the Lord. When you consecrate money to the Lord, you're setting it aside to do the Lord's work. But this money that was consecrated to the Lord she had already determined was going to be used to make an idol. And that's where we've gotten to. And it seems like the writer here is kind of embarrassed by this story. The story goes on to talk about how Micah had a number of household gods. He consecrates his son as his priest uh, to minister before these gods. But in chapter 17 and verse 6, it's the first time we see this in the book of Judges, it says it in this way, In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And I think what the writer is doing here is reminding us, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Okay, this story is not how God intended things to be. So let's remember, as we look through these stories, that during this time, there is no king in Israel, and every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. As a matter of fact, as we read through these stories, One of the things we'll notice is that there are no absolutes. There are no absolutes, and as a result, there is no right and no wrong. Might makes right. Whatever I want to do makes right. 
So as we move on with this story, at that time there was a Levite who was traveling through, and Micah convinces this Levite to stay with him and pays him to be priest for his gods. Again, twisted. Twisted. The Levites were to minister before God, and Micah somehow understood that. And I think in his mind, you know, if I can get this Levite to be with me, I'm going to have God's blessing somehow in some way. Completely twisted. About that time, the tribe of Dan comes through looking for more land to settle in. And a search party is, is sent out by the tribe of Dan and stays at Micah's house. And they ask the Levite for advice. They ask the Levite to inquire of God, is our journey going to be successful or not? And the Levite confirms that it would be successful. So I don't know, did the Levite still have some type of connection with God or where did he get his information? But apparently there was an understanding, at least from the tribe of Dan, that the Levites had some additional connection with God. And so the search party returns to their people. They come back with an army of 600 men. They steal Micah's gods, his idols. They convince the Levite to be their priest because they say it's better to be a priest for a whole, a whole tribe than just for one family. I mean, you're going to get paid better for one thing, so keep that in mind. And they went and ruthlessly murder the peaceful and unsuspecting people in the town of Laish. Now, years later, under King Jeroboam, this idolatry would continue with the golden calf that was set up at Dan. And so we see the lack of understanding here by the people of Dan as they set up their tribe around the worship of idols. And that continues as we go throughout the Old Testament. Now, the second story here in these chapters is even more horrifying and disturbing. Probably one of the most disturbing that Scripture has in it. And I won't go into full detail, but just a few notes about this story that I want us to consider. First of all, in this story, it confirms that the men in the Israelite town of of Gibeah talk and act in the same way and have the same wicked and crooked desires that the men of Sodom has. If you compare this story and look at the way that the men of Gibeah act and talk with the story of Lot in the city of Sodom, you see basically the same thing. The men of Gibeah are acting just like the men of Sodom had. And this is an Israelite town. The story is one of sexual abuse and death of a man's concubine. So what did her husband do? He called the people of Israel to war in a way that's too graphic for me to even talk about. And the result is civil war. All of Israel against the tribe of Benjamin. And we might ask, how did we get here? How did we get here? The children of Israel completely annihilated the entire tribe of Benjamin except for 600 men that so happened to escape. And then they also took a vow that they would not give any of their women as wives to the men of Benjamin. But now they're stuck with this dilemma because the battle's been won, Benjamin's lost, and there's still 600 men of Benjamin left. But they don't want to extinguish one of the tribes of Israel. That would be an awful thing to do. So how do they solve this? They've made a vow to not give any of their women to these men. They've annihilated all the rest of the tribe of Benjamin. There's no one else left except for these 600 men. Here's how they solve it. By murdering the men of one town that had not taken the vow and giving their women, their unmarried women, 
to the men of Benjamin. And then secondly, by encouraging the rest of the men of Benjamin to kidnap the women of Shiloh while they're dancing at night so that the men of Shiloh would not officially break their vow. So how did they solve their problem? The problem that they had created themselves? Murder and kidnapping. And again, the question that we ask is how did we get here? How did we get here? So we have these two very disturbing stories, and the question that comes to my mind is why? Why do we have these stories here? They're disturbing, they're disgusting, but I believe that's the point. I think that's what God intended. These stories are a warning of what happens when people turn away from God. And it wasn't even like the people in the land of Israel that time turned away from God all the time. People and judges served God from time to time, served God well. And God used people here and there to do his work and to serve him. And there are examples of people in the book that serve God wholeheartedly. So in one sense, not all is lost. But in another sense, in a very real sense, when a culture drifts from God, when a culture says that there are no absolutes, when a culture says that there is no right and no wrong, then this, Judges chapter 17 through 21, is what happens. When a culture drifts from God, unhitches itself from moral absolutes, then this is what happens. This is what we can expect. God had delivered the people from bondage in Egypt. God had been faithful to the desert. God had been faithful in the land of Canaan. But now God had to deliver the children of Israel from themselves. He had delivered them from their enemies. And now he had to deliver them from themselves. I want to wrap this up and make a couple conclusions. And hopefully help, help us understand a bit, maybe a few ways that we can take and make this practical for us today. Judges is perhaps one of the most depressing books of the Bible, and the last five chapters in particular, full of moral failure, violence, idol worship, and sin. But there are some lessons that we can learn. And the first lesson that comes to mind is that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Man cannot save himself from himself. Even if man were able to save himself from his enemies, even if man were able to save himself from outside forces, man cannot save himself from himself. All mankind, even God's people, are capable of turning from God. God's people in God's promised land are not exempt from temptation, from sin, and from moral failure. The disturbing nature of some of the stories here in the book of Judges shows us the depravity of God's people departing from God, God's people apart from God. And the tendency of mankind, as we mentioned before, is depicted here in the book. We go all the way back to chapter 2. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. Sin, oppression, repentance, 
deliverance, peace. And the cycle continues and continues and continues throughout history. And I suppose this morning we can look at these cycles and compare the cycles in the book of Judges with our own lives. And we can probably see times where we found ourselves in various parts of the cycle. But the blueprint here of human tendency found in Judges chapter 2, I want to remind us that this blueprint of human tendency is not some faraway example of the people of Israel, where we can just shake our heads in disbelief at how they turned away from God, from the God who rescued them. Neither is it an, an, an example of how ungodly people tend to get worse and worse over time. That's not really what it is. This is God's chosen people. This is God's chosen land. This is people called to do God's chosen work. This is you, and this is me. And if you're like me from time to time, I tend to think, well, I'm actually pretty good. Like, I haven't sinned in a little while, at least not sinned badly. And I can, I can kind of handle this. As in, I might even be able to handle this without God. But a quick look at the book of Judges shows the utter depravity of man by himself outside of God. And I'm particularly thankful this morning as I read this book and I look through this book of God's work in my own life. You see, my past is not pretty. My past is not pretty. It's littered with struggles with lust and with greed and with anger and with pride. And when I read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, I realize that those sins are not just little sins that I can somehow keep bottled up inside and they won't affect anything else. Because based on Jesus' words, you could peg me this morning as an adulterer, a murderer, arrogant, and idolatrous. Like, as in, I would fit right in the book of Judges. And I get this unsettling feeling, this realization that if it wouldn't be for Jesus, I would still be there. And I'm guessing this morning, if you're honest with yourself, you would be there too. And you can find yourself and your heart in the book of Judges as well. And I'm wrestling just a bit this morning because as I think about the story of the prodigal son that Larry Berge reviewed with us one night here at Bible school, there's this realization that the older brother in the story needed repentance and forgiveness just as much as the younger brother did. So I want to unpack that just a minute. Did the Canaanites, the people that lived in the land of Canaan before the Israelites came, did they need repentance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were kind of beyond repentance, you might say. But did God's people in the book of Judges need repentance to the same extent? Absolutely. Absolutely. And without, without God at work, they would have been beyond repentance as well. And so whether you find yourself as having grown up in the church or outside of the church, you are equally a sinner and equally in need of repentance. But there is a little bit of hope 
in the book of Judges. The theme verse of the book is a judgment on the people of Israel. And I mentioned this before. At that time, there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's found four times in the last five chapters of the book. Now, this verse highlights the problem. There was no king. Everyone was doing what was right. There were no absolutes. But it also notes the solution and sets the stage for the next part of Israel's history. The time of King David would provide the spiritual direction that the people needed at that time. But ultimately, the time of the kings was a time of failure as well. Just bringing a king, an earthly king, into the situation did not solve the problem. They needed good kings with godly hearts. And so the story continues. And these verses, I believe, where it talks about no king. And as we look throughout Israel's history and see that kings did not solve the problem, I think ultimately these verses point ahead to a time when a king would come and set up an everlasting kingdom. And the time of Israel during this time is much like we find in the church today. God has not appointed any main leader on this earth. Uh, Now, the main leader of the church is Christ, but there isn't any one leader here on earth to lead the entire church and to arbitrate when there's a, a disagreement. Different people live in different ways. From time to time, leaders may arise. God may lead, may uh, bring people up to lead in various ways. But there is no main leader. And there are, also, there, there are also times of moral decay. And so today, we have the exact same choice before us that the people had in the book of Judges. Just like them, we have a choice to make. And the choice is this. The options are clear. We can totally surrender to Christ or we can completely surrender to ourselves and live lives of complete depravity, spiraling downward and downward over time. And what stands out to me this morning is that there's no middle ground. There's no other way. There's no gray area here. The option and the choice is ours. Will we submit ourselves to Christ or will we live in the depravity of our own hearts. Let's kneel for prayer.